With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. Researchers working to produce drought resistant wheat with longer roots. Researchers at UC Davis are partnering with an international team of scientists to develop wheat varieties that can withstand drought and low water conditions. According to a paper published in the journal Nature Communications, the effort is showing promise. Its new genetic research has led to wheat plants with longer root growth, which enables them to pull water from deeper supplies. The authors noted that the plants that resulted from genetic trials have more biomass and produce higher grain yields. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report, and now let's get into today's show headlines. The DWR's review of 12 GSPs. Last week, 12 sustainable groundwater management plans were up for technical review. The California Department of Water Resources last week struck down half of those proposed plans. All 12 plans were from critically overdrafted basins throughout the Central Coast and the San Joaquin Valley. The approved basins were Cuyama, the eastern San Joaquin, Merced, Kings, Paso Robles area, and Westside. However, the DWR deemed the plans for Chowchilla, Delta Mendota, Cahuilla, Kern County, Tulare Lake, and Tule inadequate, and more action needed to be taken to address one or more of each plant's deficiencies. The six inadequate subbasins are now under state intervention, overseen by the State Water Resources Control Board under SIGMA. California Farm Bureau President Jamie Johansson says, quote, This action will trigger a process before the Water Board that will afford local agencies additional opportunities to address identified problems, regain control of their basins, and hopefully avoid formal probationary status or the imposition of eventual state interim plans. He also says this isn't going to be an easy transition. By stating, quote, passage of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act in the 2014 drought year was a seismic shift in California water. He added, quote, it was never going to be an easy transition on a timeline of just 20 years to eliminate an estimated 2.5 million acre feet of overdraft a year in our most impacted areas of the state. Historic droughts in recent years have also shown us that we can't simply continue as we have been and that California must also invest in a more resilient 21st century water system. And now here's Brian German with more Ag News. Almond growers may have more of a pest problem than they realize if basing assessments of pest damage too heavily on reject levels. Vice President of Member Relations for Blue Diamond Growers Mel Machado describes why growers may want to reevaluate their understanding of pest problems in their orchards. Rejects are the problem to keep on taking away. With navel orange worm, uh, the shellerman and the, and the harvester as well can uh, take out some of the problems. But you know the sheller operators uh, with a good gravity deck and a good operator on it, they're going to remove about half the rejects. So in general, what we tell growers is whatever you see on your statement as your reject level, double it, and that's where you're really going to be coming out of the field. And that's been proven time and again with growers taking field samples and then comparing it to the statements. With other pests, uh, it can be quite different. With ants, uh, the really creative ant will take everything, leaving just the peel, and that never makes it out of the field. And I always tell people having ant damage in ants is kind of silly because the baits are very effective. They're also reasonably priced, too. The one single most gratifying thing you can do as an amateur is apply ant bait because they're taking it home in 15 minutes. It's kind of fun to watch. The Cal Poly Strawberry Center has been honored for innovation in pest management. The California Department of Pesticide Regulation recognized the Strawberry Center for its innovation and commitment to implementing integrated pest management during the recent IPM Achievement Awards ceremony. 
The Cal Poly Strawberry Center improves IPM and sustainability in strawberry production through prolific research and outreach programs with a focus on plant pathology, entomology, and labor automation. The center is conducting ongoing research to increase the quality of commercial beneficial predatory mites and improving the Ligus bug vacuum as alternatives to traditional pesticides. The center is a partnership between the Strawberry Commission and Cal Poly that began back in 2013. The Strawberry Center provides IPM training for undergraduate and graduate students who plan to advance to positions within the strawberry industry and carry on the center's IPM and sustainability philosophy. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Neal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, there's been a lot of focus in Washington, D.C. on conservation programs in agriculture, and that could have an effect on the 2023 Farm Bill. I talked recently with Robert Gunther, Chief Public Policy Officer at International Fresh Produce Association and Secretary of the Specialty Crop Farm Bill Alliance. One of the things we discussed was conservation programs in the Farm Bill. I think in terms of that, I think that we want to make sure that, number one, any climate change, any climate type related programs are not, you know, that they're voluntary because, you know, we just don't have a lot of research and data in our space related to the impact of climate change production practices and how they potentially benefit the climate. And, and I think that, you know, when we look at this is we got to make sure that we're fully, you know, researching these areas that, you know, need to be addressed before we just jump into being required to do certain practices that may or may not be beneficial to the overall environment and the climate of, of the world quite frankly. Do you think that given the current conversation that's been going on for the last few years about conservation and agriculture, that this is is going to be one of the harder topics, one of the harder titles in the Farm Bill this year? Or do you think that it'll kind of go over like previous years? (laughs) I do think it's going to be a very, one of the, you know, if you wanted to look at some of the key points to follow in the next several months, if, if, you know, what we hear is true that there's going to be you know, trying to get the bill done by the end of September, reauthorize the farm bill by the end of September. Climate is going to be one of those debates we're going to have to watch very closely. Obviously, the SNAP and nutrition programs as well, you know, those two will dominate a lot of the discussion of whether we can get a bipartisan approach to to a farm bill this year or have to have to focus on an extension, unfortunately, if that, if, if, if that comes to pass. So to me, those are the two big areas to watch are how – is Congress going to to look at the current programs that are focused in, in conservation and, and attached to climate, but also how the conversations go, the negotiations go on on some of the, and well, in particular, the SNAP program. The Specialty Crop Farm Bill Alliance recently released its priorities for the 2023 Farm Bill. Gunther says a lot of effort went into making that list. We have seen a lot of change since the last Farm Bill. 
And again, when you look at our recommendations, we have, I think, around 109 recommendations, as I mentioned, in, in, in eight titles. You know, I've been working with the Farm Alliance and, and my role as, at International Fresh Produce and the previous organizations for over 20 years, and this is probably the most comprehensive effort to date that we have presented recommendations to Capitol Hill, but it also reflects some of the challenges we've seen, you know, since, like I said, since the 18th Farm Bill, going through COVID, there are a lot of new things that we never, you know, we didn't think may not be rising to the level that they are now that we see. And and so that's why it did take us a pretty, pretty long uh, time to, to get these recommendations put on paper. There's 26 new recommendations in this farm bill that we're, we're presenting to, to the Hill. As I mentioned, you know, the number of, of uh, we had, I think, over 11 working groups that we worked with and um, that we developed and, and that went through title by title some of the, you know, some of the efforts that, that are presented in this paper, so in, this, in these recommendations. So we know we got a steep hill to climb, but we think, you know, this is probably the best, most reflective of things we need to have incorporated and in, in to make continue to thrive as an industry and agriculture uh, here in the United States. You can hear more of my interview with Gunther in the Agnet Weekly podcast. You can find it on our website, agnetwest.com. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, while the current FDA regulations define dairy products as being from dairy animals, the FDA recently released draft guidance allowing plant-based products to continue to use dairy terms despite not containing dairy. Well, during an interview late last week with the National Association of Farm Broadcasters, National Milk Producers Federation Senior Vice President for Communications, Alan Birga, commented on that draft guidance. On the one hand, they have said that it is okay for these beverages to use the term milk for their oat, soy, almond, beverage, what have you. But more importantly for us, they're saying that if you use that, the guidance says you have to have disclaimers showing your nutritional differences from dairy. This is a big win for dairy because dairy has superior nutrition to these plant-based imitators. We expect this will have a positive effect in terms of transparency for consumers and for getting these dairy terms off products. It's still not enough. We still need to get these dairy terms away from these beverages. That's still the FDA standard of identity. Now, a new bill in the U.S. Senate called the Dairy Pride Act of 2023 is designed to require non-dairy products made from nuts, seeds, plants, and algae to no longer be mislabeled with dairy terms like milk, yogurt, or cheese. The next step is to push harder for the passage of the Dairy Pride Act, which has been introduced in the U.S. Senate. We expect it to be introduced in the House soon. This would push FDA to enforce its basic standard of identity. Remember, this guidance is only voluntary, and while we would expect a lot of companies to follow it, it still allows these terms on labels because FDA hasn't enforced its own rules for more than four decades. The Dairy Pride Act would require FDA to come up with a plan to enforce its standard of identity and bring U.S. practice in line with the rest of the world and not allowing these plant-based beverages to use dairy terms. Birga encourages dairy producers to comment on the FDA proposal. Anyone who's interested in commenting on this guidance for the FDA, this is a draft guidance that's open until April 24th for comment. They can go to nmpf.org. We have a red button on our homepage. You can click on it. You can learn more about how to comment for FDA and make your voice heard. And that's going to be important. This is going to be an issue that's going to get a lot of attention and a lot of comments. And supporters of dairy have to make sure that their voices are heard as well. 
To learn more about all of this, go to the National Milk Producers Federation website, nmpf.org. And a reminder, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association is accepting applications until this Friday, March 10th, for the 2023 Environmental Stewardship Award. The yearly award recognizes outstanding stewardship practices and conservation achievements of U.S. cattle producers. Any group, individual, or organization is eligible to nominate one individual or business raising or feeding cattle. Individuals and families may not nominate themselves, but they can be involved in preparing the application. To learn more, go to environmentalstewardship.org. Again, that's environmentalstewardship.org. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Why do we have GMOs? Actually, we've been modifying crops for thousands of years to prevent crop loss from pest and weather damage, to grow more food on less land, even to improve nutrition. Today, GMOs are developed for the same reasons. With genetic engineering, scientists can change and improve crops more easily and quickly. Feed your mind with more GMO facts on FDA's website. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. It's Ag Safety Awareness Week. That's coming up on this end of hours. The Agricultural Safety Awareness Week program is this week, March 6th through the 10th. U.S. Agricultural Safety and Health Centers will join farm bureaus across the country to promote ag safety this week with the theme of Lead the Way in Agriculture. Each day has a different focus, beginning with Monday, which was mental health. Preventive health care, safety culture, situational awareness, and temperature-related safety are the focuses for today through Friday, respectively. American Farm Bureau President Zippy Duvall says keeping everyone safe on America's farms and ranches is very important. He says they encourage farmers and ranchers to take the time to make safety a priority during this week and throughout the year. The Agricultural Safety and Awareness Program is part of the Farm Bureau Health and Safety Network of professionals who share an interest in decreasing safety and health risks. Visit the Center's YouTube channel for new content and fresh ideas about how to stay safe year-round. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Wishes for the rest of the Western snowpack season. With the data from the recent snow survey, the Phillips Snow Station presenting numbers well above average. California, that's a big focus after three years of drought. We have a snowpack that has now crept up to around 45 inches or a little higher as of early March. That is close to twice normal for this time of year. And even if no more snow falls during the month of March, that would put us at about 170% of average of April 1st. There may be some lingering hydrologic and groundwater issues heading into spring, but effectively California's 
his drought has been diminished to eradicated, depending on what part of the state you look at. One of the big impacts has been a gain in reservoir storage. By February 1st, California had already gained almost 9 million acre feet of water. That doesn't include anything that will come with snowmelt later this spring. 9 million acre feet is just about average for the replenishment that typically occurs in California's 154 primary intrastate reservoirs. So even before snowmelt, we've got a pretty good runoff season in place. Reservoirs in California effectively at normal storage for this time of year. And with snowmelt still to go, that is likely to go above average later this spring. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey notes the weather conditions that could benefit areas of the West in both additional mountain snowpack accumulation and water runoff. A couple of things we would welcome in the West would be more spring precipitation in the Northwest where we have seen that drying trend. Another thing that would be really important for maximizing the benefit of all the snow that has fallen would be a snow melt season that is very slow, a very gradual melt, which means that we would benefit if it stays cold like it has been much of the winter and how it currently is now. With the cold weather and the slowly melting snow, that maximizes the capture into reservoirs and for soil moisture replenishment. Autonomy could be a piece of the puzzle for workplace safety and labor shortages. Presenting at both the AgSafe Conference and the World Ag Expo was Blue White. It's a company that retrofits tractors with their product to drive autonomously. Graham Thompson, the director of business for Blue White, says autonomy fits in with the future of the industry not only to fill the need for labor shortages, but also to provide workplace safety in one of the most dangerous industries to work in. And it's very much what we offer as a product and uh, we offer robotics as a service and we provide autonomous capability for the growers existing tractors. So whatever tractors the grower has, we're able to put on the, the, uh, uh, the uh, autonomy stack so that the tractor is then capable of running autonomously, safely in the field. And a big part of that is, is then also working with what's, uh, what's uh, on the back of the tractor, putting the implement partners together with our tractor offerings so that we can do the job in the field, in the orchard, in the vineyards, autonomously, safely, and at the, time, at the same time bringing efficiencies for the, the growers. Blue White was one of the top 10 new product winners at the World Ag Expo. Undersecretary of Agriculture Robert Bonney says one of the most serious issues for beginning small or underserved farmers is the lack of access to credit. And so... We need to make sure we open the doors wide for everybody and that will benefit all of agriculture and obviously farm loans is a critical part of that. Yes, as most all farmers know, without credit it is almost impossible for any farmer to make it. This is what I feel like I was brought to the agency for is to help improve access to credit especially to those underserved populations. That's the administrator of USDA's Farm Service Agency, Zach Ducheneau, and he told the Senate Ag Committee the other day that improving access to credit for those producers or would-be producers who need it most is a work in progress. He says just the application process is daunting for many people, so he has set about simplifying the application forms themselves. He said when he started his job with FSA a couple of years ago, it was a 29-page application marathon. We've refined that down to 13 now, 
as a first step in better serving equitably across all of the populations we serve. But Ducheneau says he'd like to see some more fundamental policy changes for USDA farm loan programs. He said the law pertaining to USDA farm loans, as most people read it, is that USDA is the lender of last resort. It's not supposed to issue a farm operating loan if credit is available to the farmer commercially. And so... Our loan officers feel like they have no choice but to tell that producer... You can go get credit over there. It's going to cost you 5% more, but go get another job. But Ducheneau says he'd like to see that situation, that last resort credit test, changed. We should look to be that lender of first opportunity as opposed to that lender of last resort. And I think that can start with a better reading of our authorizing statute. Credit sufficient to meet the actual needs of the borrower at reasonable rates and terms. He said what's needed instead of that last resort credit test is a process designed to help meet the credit needs of each particular farmer in his or her unique situation. We want to be able to have an analysis, talk about long-range planning with that producer, to think about loan modifications differently and fund those changes is critical to really opening that toolbox for our borrowers with respect to loan servicing and better loan structuring as a planning tool for our producers. Zach Ducheneau told the Senate panel he'd be happy to work with lawmakers on this issue as they craft the next farm bill. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. A big issue when a farmer nears retirement is the sale of equipment. What are your options for dealing with equipment when you're getting out of farming without triggering a big tax bill? I'll be back in a moment with the details. Agriculture needs the next generation. Kansas State University's College of Agriculture prepares students through applied learning, internships, and research. Learn more at ag.ksu.edu. I'll get back to the report in a moment, but I want you to know that Schrader Real Estate and Auction Company has sold farm and ranch land and farm equipment in 40 states. Learn how the Schrader family can help your family. Visit SchraderAuction.com. That's S-C-H-R-A-D-E-R Auction.com. When nearing retirement from farming, many farmers structure a sale to a child or a neighbor as an installment sale. The thought is that having the buyer pay for the equipment over time will spread out the taxable gain over several years. But that's not typically the result with equipment sales. Often, significant depreciation has been taken on the equipment such that it has little to no income tax basis. When the equipment is sold, that depreciation is recaptured in the year of sale. All of it. It's not spread out over the life of the sale contract as the payments are received. And it's taxed at the seller's ordinary income tax rate. It's not capital gain. So what can you do to avoid this result? Sell the equipment piece by piece. This will spread the payments and the tax liability out over time, but it may not work well if equipment market values decline. 
Maybe you could contribute the equipment to a charitable remainder trust. Another option is to lease the equipment to someone. In the current market, however, maybe simply selling the equipment is an option to think about. Used equipment values are high right now, and tax rates might be lower now than they will be in the future. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. soybean and wheat futures may look oversold on paper, but bottom line grain analysts don't see a big rebound. Cattle futures look toppy, while lean hogs still searching for a near-term bottom. I'm Mark Oppold. This is the Bottom Line Report for Tuesday, March 7th, brought to you by AgriLiquid. Grain traders will closely monitor tomorrow's monthly crop report for any minor changes in South American production or even looking ahead to the U.S., December corn, we think, will find sellers above 580, 582. November soybeans already felt pressure above the 1386 level yesterday. Watch for that. And we think wheat really the best potential for a significant rebound. Watch that July Kansas City low yesterday near 791. That could be the low for the week. AgriLiquid is all about crop nutrition all season long. You know, every dollar counts this year, and that's why at AgriLiquid they say apply less. But expect more. Learn more at AgriLiquid.com. Box beef remains the highest since January 31st of last year, and cattle traders hold the largest net long position since May of 2019. Pork production will increase in the first quarter from the fourth quarter, only the second time that's happened since 1976. Many wonder if April lean hogs can continue to hold that premium to cash. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day. Modernization of USDA's Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program has been evident for some time through the aspect of online ordering of food products. The SNAP program started offering online shopping as an option in March of 2020. And that's something that's expanded throughout the SNAP program and become a very popular option for people using their SNAP benefits. Now, as Rebecca Piazza of USDA's Food and Nutrition Service explains, based on that success, a proposed rule is now available in the Federal Register for comment on changes within the Women, Infants, and Children program. WIC to make it more accessible to participants. Families who shop for food using WIC benefits should have the same convenient shopping options that everyone else had. That's something that USDA believes in and something we've heard from WIC participants and stakeholders, and we agree. Some modifications in the proposed rule address existing regulations that prevent online shopping through the WIC program. There's currently a requirement that transactions are performed in front of a cashier, as well as some other requirement in how shopping occurs in the program. This proposed rule removes those requirements or changes them in order to enable online shopping. FNS has collaborated with state agencies to pilot online shopping programs for different initiatives, such as SNAP. But at this point, those efforts have required waivers of program rules. So this proposed rule updates the WIC program requirements to allow online ordering and delivery without waivers as part of standard program operations. In addition to the online shopping component, Piazza says there are other changes within the proposed final rule designed to improve the customer experience for WIC participants. One of the proposals in the rule is remote issuance of benefits so that WIC participants can have their benefits loaded onto their card without having to go to a clinic. And also new types of vendors for WIC, including online-only vendors for online shopping, which will give participants more shopping choices. Additional adjustments within the proposed rule focus on increasing access to infant formula, 
Currently, 1.2 million infants receive formula through WIC benefits, and more than half of infant formula purchased in the U.S. is done so by WIC participants. People who would like to know more about this rule can look for it on the Federal Register's website, and comments are open through May 24th. After the comment period, the Nutrition Service will review the comments, make any updates to the rule, and then publish an updated version. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. What GMO crops are grown and sold in the U.S.? Well, there's corn, like me, soybeans, canola, sugar beets, and cotton. Typically, we're ingredients in certain foods. GMO alfalfa, corn, soybeans, canola, and cotton are used as animal food. And while you won't find many GMOs in the produce section, there are versions of GMO apple, summer squash, potato, and papaya in a few markets. Feed your mind with more GMO knowledge on FDA's website. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, continuing my conversation with Stanislaus County Farm Bureau's Anna Genesi and CFO of Birchall Nurseries, Jim Austin, talking all about H-2A and labor reform. Gosh, I feel like one of the top issues whenever I talk with folks like Jamie Johansson or if I talk with other, um, you know, policymakers, they hear about the labor shortage. So is it just a lack of labor um, or is there more to it? No, it's the lack of labor. And it's, it's been building, and it got to the point a few years ago, before the pandemic even, that we would ask, you know, again, our business is very seasonal, and we would ask our farm labor contractors for the number of workers that we wanted to use, and we were starting to see a very real pattern of them being unable to provide that. And in some cases, um, not even close. And Mother Nature is not going to wait for you to figure out where you're going to get people and try to get the work done. Mother Nature is on her own schedule. We have to follow her schedule. And so we don't have the luxury, if you will, of putting things off. And so um, that forced us to start looking at things that we otherwise might not have looked at, like the H-2A program. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, lack of labor availability that's one issue um another issue and you kind of spoke to it before we started recording um but just the cost of farming and the cost of day-to-day operations and having to set up housing and um you know the wages of of these workers who come from out of state so uh, my question for you jim is when it comes to the cost of farming how big of a portion of that goes into farm labor? And how has the new workforce requirements here in California, let's say minimum wage increase and overtime work hours, impacted day-to-day operations uh, of the cost of production and how you think about gathering a workforce? That's probably the biggest challenge we face in the long term. I, I might argue that right now the biggest challenge we face is having enough water. That's everybody's primary concern. But beyond that, I think labor is the next biggest concern and the cost of labor. In, in our business, 
over 50% of the cost of our tree is labor. And it might even be 60%. You know, it's not 80, but it's, it's a significant piece of the cost of the tree. And so as the cost of labor increases, so does the cost of the tree. And, you know, California's minimum wage has increased dramatically over the last seven years. And that is reflected in the cost of our tree. If you planted an orchard in the late 1990s and are coming back now to look at replacing it, you're in for a shock. um, The prices are going to be close to triple what it was before. And here's more bad news. The trees are the cheapest part of your planting. Mm -hmm. Wait wait till you try to put in irrigation. Wait till you you try to do land prep. I mean, it's just amazing what the cost increases have been. But, but for us, the big driver in uh, being willing to try H2A was just not, just simply not being able to get the people we needed to get the work done when we needed to get it done. Hmm. What might be some of the hiccups or the problems with the current H2A program? I know there's been a lot of talk about reform. You know, over the last couple of years, there's been this Farm Workforce Modernization Act, and it's introduced and then amended and reintroduced and it's passed out of the house a couple different times, but there's still some pushback. So can either of you talk to the current problems with the H-2A program and why there's a need for, you know, this farm workforce reform? Yeah, Danielle, I would, I would say from a Farm Bureau perspective, we want to be sure that we are, you know, protecting the folks that are here and working and, um, Part of the struggle with with some of this legislation um, is they're requiring a, an initial touchback. So if you're here uh, in the United States, not through legal means, most of the things being proposed are saying you you have to go home and then come back in through this new route. Um, and there's a real concern there because whether we want to acknowledge it or not. There are a lot of people here who've been working for a really long time who are productive members of this society, and this now is their home. So when we say go back home, I'm using air quotes, you can't see me, (laughs) that doesn't really mean anything to them anymore, right? They've they've made a life here, they've established families. And so just from a practical standpoint, there should be a path for legal status for folks who are already here. And I know one of the things that we as a society get hung up on is whether or not um, people are becoming citizens. And in some cases, folks who are here working aren't necessarily seeking citizenship. They just they want to be here through a legal mechanism that allows them to work and earn money and support their families, whether their families are here in the Central Valley or in another country. Um, so this this touchback thing is a real hindrance, I, I would say. Um, and, you know, just and then speaking as, you know, a, a human being, <laughs> um, if, if somebody's here and they're working hard, I don't want that. I don't want to discourage them from being here and working hard. Um, and and I want that person to feel comfortable to continue doing their job. And so that that touchback is really uh, uh, difficult. And then as we've talked about earlier, um, just the seasonality of the commodities that we grow looks very different than other states. And so H2A being seasonal, you know, it's temporary. It even says it in the name. It is a temporary ag program. Um, Folks are not meant to stay here. 
And with the commodities that we grow, we we sometimes see people all year long. Um, or our operation is diverse enough that we can have them work, you know, doing pruning and thinning, you know, this time of year in this field. And, and then now I'm going to, you know, need a group of folks that can go to our Fresno location and do X, Y, and Z. And so the temporary in nature is, is a hardship for us, um, in particular with our dairy uh, members, right? Um, that's, that's 100%. We need them year round. I would say that's our experience in the nursery business too. It's the same. Yeah. There's just things that we do. I mean, look at Stanislaus County. You know, we are blessed and, and unique in that Birchill is not the only nursery here in Stanislaus County. We have a handful of nurseries here in Stanislaus County that literally are sending trees all over the United States, if not the world. Zager uh, uh, Genetics, who is world renowned, is located in Modesto. You know, um, we are doing some really amazing things um, in this county and, 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 and products that are coming out of this county. And that will only continue if we have a workforce that we can rely on, right? We can, Water, ever moving target, right? We don't know what we're going to get. We don't know how much we're going to get. Uh, you know, over-regulation tends to be the track that we are on as a state. And so one of the variables that would be really nice to lock in would be access to, you know, a productive quality workforce. So, so what happens, what are some of the impacts, you know, of not having a reform of not having access to these year round workers? I'm just going to jump in and just give my, my two cents on my perspective. This is not a solution. I'm just going to speak on behalf of the, the business perspective, and that is from our needs as, as a business, we need to know how many people we're going to have to get the work done. Ideally, they have the skills to do that. We, you know, we are not afraid to train people. But what we have found, and it's a generational thing, it cuts across all ethnic and racial groups. And it does not matter if you're of European descent, if you're of African descent, if you are of Hispanic descent or you are of Asian descent, or if you are Native American descent, what we have found is that Americans, regardless of their ethnic background, don't want to do agricultural work for whatever reason. That has been a big generational change. And I I commented to Anna before we started the podcast, in, in my family, I'm the first generation in God knows how long, maybe ever, that has not worked in the fields. um, One of my sons did work here for a number of years, but the reality is the same thing has happened even in my family. You know, they're going to college and they're probably not coming back into agriculture. But if we put food on the table, we have to figure out a way to get people to do this work because until such time as it can all be automated, which frankly in the nursery business, I don't see anything like that on the horizon. We're going to need people to do the work. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. 
Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. In today's Agronomic Minute, brought to you by UPL, a leader in sustainable crop management solutions for California's orchards and vineyards. And we're joined by Technical Services Manager for Biosolutions for UPL, Cassie Reeser. And today we're discussing pistachios. And so, Cassie, with bloom on the horizon, what should growers be keeping in mind here as it pertains to disease and trying to mitigate infection? Uh, Right now, dormant disease spores could be an issue for growers. With a few days of rain, both in the past and upcoming, dormant spores can spread. Warmer temperatures are needed to activate some pathogens. With the colder storms, it's probably not a huge issue for pistachios, but rain does spread diseases like Botrysphaeria spores, and growers might need to treat for them for this pathogen sooner if we have a warmer spring rather than early summer, uh, which is normal time for the treatment. Uh, if the orchard does have a history of Botrysphaeria, panicle, or shoot flight, you know, you really want to treat when the panicles or the flower clusters appear in the spring. If we do have a wet and cool weather, during bloom, we do want to consider treating for botrytis, blossom, and shoot blight. And now uh, looking at what growers might be able to do to um, offset some of those impacts or protect their crop from um, those disease pressures, what are some of the options that are out there? So some of the solutions in our portfolio would include PHD, Cooperfix, Disperse, and Elevate. Some of the benefits of PHD is that it has a unique mode of action that inhibits a chitin synthase of fungus, which really helps it act as a knockdown of the fungus and really helps to reset the clock on fungal growth. It's best used as as a preventative when conditions are favorable for the disease development. Copper uses its copper ions to denature proteins of fungus and the enzymes and is best used again prior to infection as it does not enter the plant tissue. And then Elevate, as I mentioned, is labeled for the use on botrytis blossom and shoot plate and is best used at full bloom um, as it is a keto reductase inhibitor or in the KRI group of fungicides. So each of those kind of has their own um, individual timing window there, depending on, on where you are and your disease pressure. There, there are options available for no matter kind of where you are at that point in the season. Yep. So we have kind of multiple products to hit whatever disease and timing you're looking for. Very good. And now just lastly here, if growers are looking to learn more about this or what might be best for their operation, uh, where can they get some more information on that? Yeah, you can contact either your local retailer to get more information on any of these products. You can go to our website, upl-ltd.com slash us and look at the product pages and you can also call your local sales representative. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Daniel Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halbertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West.
Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.